Our scripture for this morning is found in the book of Deuteronomy, the third chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. 1 through 13 of Deuteronomy chapter 3. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses is in the midst of recounting the journey from Mount Sinai, as he refers to it as Mount Horeb here in Deuteronomy, and he's recounting the journey uh, from there as they now are standing at the border of the land of Canaan and are about to inherit the land. We read God's word. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Andreg. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities. The whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians called Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites call it Sinar. All the cities of the Tableland, and all Gilead, and all Bashan, as far as Salaka and Andrai, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephraim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Ramah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory, beginning at Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities, the rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of Argob, I gave to the one-half tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Shall we pray? 
Dear Lord and, and Heavenly Father, it seems at times we are, are battling these giants. And dear Father, we just are reminded that uh, the battle belongs to you, that you've given us, Father, your word, and that's uh, the sword that heals. And also, Father, that your word accomplish, accomplishes everything that you have in mind for it. And so we pray that you'll be with Pastor Bob this morning as he brings that word. Give him um, the words to say and the wisdom, Father, and open our hearts and our minds to, to receive this, that we will be uh, more equipped, Father, to go out into the mission field that you have provided for us, Father, and be faithful followers of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we continue our summer series on those uh, individuals in the Bible whose names begin with the letter O, we come this morning to uh, this very unique name uh, who has a relatively short portion of Scripture in which he is talked about and uh, centered on, and yet uh, here too, God speaks to us as his people. So this morning our message is entitled, A Man Called Og. We want to look at three things. First of all, the context of Og. Secondly, the account of Og. And thirdly, the foreshadow of Og. Because that which God is telling us here, even as our Brother Ken prayed a few moments ago, far surpasses just the historical account of what is taking place here. So first of all, the context. Well, we raise Og here in the book of Deuteronomy. Now you could also read this in, in more the historical narrative, the chronological account, as you find it in Numbers. But Moses, through the Holy Spirit obviously, finds it important to, to re-mention Ag in the context of the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, Moses is giving to us a recap of God's deliverance. This is sort of the summary. As we go through the, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, we're, we're telling the story of the people of Israel as they go down to the land of Egypt, and now they're in the bondage in the land, and then God sends them the deliverer Moses, and how God delivered them out of Egypt, and how he led them through the wilderness. You, you have that account. But Deuteronomy is standing, as I said, on the border of Canaan, there at the Jordan River, looking back, looking back on that which God has done. And it's a retelling, a, a recap of the deliverance that God has brought. But it does more than that. It, it does that, it functions in that way, but it is also set in the context of covenant. The whole book of Deuteronomy is, is the book of the second law. The, in the sense, the giving of the law again that we have in Deuteronomy chapter 5. But as you read through Deuteronomy, it is the covenant that it, it, it's just there. Almost on every page. Particularly as you come to the end and, and you hear these blessings and the curses for covenant obedience and covenant disobedience. But through it all, it, you have to look at Deuteronomy through the lens that God has made a covenant with his people. Og is taking place here in Deuteronomy 3 
in that context, yes, of God's deliverance, but also that deliverance is because of God's covenant relationship with these people of Israel. Lastly, Deuteronomy is also a reminder of God's calling. So God's deliverance, God's covenant, but then Deuteronomy also is filled again with God's calling. God's calling to them to to obedience, to live as his people. You're about ready to enter the land now. You're about ready to go into this land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to go into all different places. You're going to inherit this land. And you're going to be spread out. You're not going to be one group any longer. Marching, moving. Now you're going to be throughout the land. I'm reminding you, God is saying throughout Deuteronomy, you need to live as my obedient people. You need to live as my holy people. You need to live as my separate people. Don't mix with those people who are part of the land. Don't mix with those cultures that surround you. Be distinct. Be unique. Be my people. Go in and inherit that land. It's in that bigger context now comes this story, this account of Og. And what do we know about him? What what does scripture tell us in these verses? Well, the first thing it tells us is that he is a king. And he's a king of a land that is called Bashan. The thing about Bashan is this. It is it is as if it itself is a foreshadow of Canaan. It in itself is a fertile land. It's it's excellent as far as pasture land. So much so that the tribes of Reuben and Gad and that half-tribe of Manasseh are going to come and say, hey, this too is land that God gave us. We want this. We're the pasturers. We're, We're the guys who raise livestock. And this is excellent land. This we want. But there was more to come on the other side of the Jordan. There was more yet. But even on this side of the Jordan, before they cross, before they enter the land flowing with milk and honey, is this rich, fertile pasture lands. Flat, even. It it was ideally set up. This is the land over which Og is king. It's, in a sense, a land that would be desired. But it is not the Israelites. It belongs to Og. And Og is a man of size. Right? We, we read that in this account in regards to his bed. Now, you, you have to pause and say, well, it's just his bed. Yeah, but why does God want us to know about his bed? Well, God wants us to know about his bed because it's a big bed. It's a large bed. And it was a prized possession. Not for his people. God knows what happens when you put something desirous in front of his people. They covet it. 
and they turn it into an idol. But the Ammonites took it. In fact, as you read the account, it's like, yeah, the Ammonites got it. They, it's almost as if it's in their public museum so everybody can see the bed of Ai. Well, how big is it? Well, Scripture tells us that the bed, uh, in parentheses, this section, verse 11, right, was nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth. What does that translate into? Thirteen feet long and six feet wide. Now, first of all, the first thing that's going to come to your mind is you're going to say, well, that's not necessarily that wide. Let's pause. This is for the king. And you say, well, doesn't the queen sleep with the king? No. Okay. No, the queen does not sleep with the king. She has her own residence. She has her own place, right? And when we read through the account of Solomon, for example, he builds a whole separate palace for the queen. Right? So we, we, it's a whole different way that this functions. When the king wants the queen, he summons her, she comes. But generally speaking, she's off in her own place. She's got her own bedroom. She's got her own palace. This is his bed. Six feet wide for a single person and 13 feet long. Who needs a bed 13 feet long? The answer to that is a giant. See, that's the reference that we have with these Rephium. Some of you perhaps have a New King James or a King James Version in front of you. There, it tells you that Rephium is translated in the word giant. He is a giant of a man. He is huge. His bed needs to be 13 feet long. It, it almost as if the Og is much larger even than Goliath in terms of height. Og is referenced as one of the Rephium, one of the last of the giants in this particular area. He is a huge man. Right? And, and that in and of itself is an imposing thing, isn't it? Right? When, whenever you, you know, whenever it's, whether it's generally involved in sports, okay, you, you come on the field and there's this giant of a person, you're like, Wow, we're in trouble. You go on the basketball court and there's this seven foot four guy. You go, you're in trouble. Right? You go to the volleyball court and there's a seven foot guy standing there. You know you're in trouble. Right? But that's life too. We, we, we are still, even in our society today, somewhat still threatened by somebody who is taller and larger than we are. Right? Maybe it's from our days on the playground when that tall, larger guy got his way all the time on the playground and could beat the rest of us up, and so we just went along with what the tall guy said. The fact that he is this large. Now, not every Israelite sees him, but they hear of him. You know, Og, he's huge. 
But he's huge not only in terms of his size, he's huge in terms of his pride. Because you see, the story of Og takes place after the story of Sihon. How many times in this passage didn't we read about Sihon? Why, why do we do that? Because Og should have learned. Sihon was defeated. He's humiliated. Everything is destroyed. Do I want to go about against these Israelites? No, look what they just did to my neighbor. What does Sihon, what does Og do? I don't care. I'm going to come out against them. I'm going to do it anyway. The size of his person is only second to the size of his ego and of his pride. This is a man of size. A man who commands a nation. He is a king. It's almost as if, right? It's almost as if God places before the Israelites as almost the final thing before they enter the land of Canaan, the one thing that they feared the most. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, remember what happened 40 years before this passage? 40 years before this, they're in Kadesh Barnea. They send out spies, and what do they come back with? All the people are large, and there's walled cities. Did you catch that in that reading? They have walled, fortified cities. God, as it were, is saying, okay, I'm, I'm going I'm to test you one more time. Back there in Kadesh Barnea, I tested you. You failed miserably. You said, let's go back to Egypt. So now I'm placing before you, Og, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? And he's got a big land. And it's a good land. It swallows people up. It's fortified cities. And he's coming out against you. What are you going to do now? It's God's test of his people. But the account of Og doesn't so much dwell on those things other than the fact what it does center on is the fact that he is defeated. He's defeated. He is defeated. His cities are defeated. His people are defeated. They devote everything except for the livestock and spoil. But all humans are exterminated. This big threat is gone. That's what Moses is emphasizing. Hey, we came up to Sion. What happened? We defeated him. Well, then what happened? We came, Og came out against us. What happened then? He was defeated as well. But note, but note God's word. Verse 2. See, verse 1, Og comes with all his people, okay, his army, up against them. Okay, he, he's not waiting to be attacked. He is on the offensive. Verse 2. The Lord said to me, do not fear. Do not fear him. For I have given him into your hand. And all his people. And his land. And you're going to do to him exactly what you just did to Sihon. God comes to his people. 
in the midst of this threat of this giant of a man. He says to them, fear not. Fear not. Why? It's interesting, isn't it? Look at, look at verse 2. Sometimes it's, it's small things. Fear not. Why? For I will give him into your hand. Is that what it reads? No. For I have given him into your hand. Wait a minute. We haven't even fought yet. We haven't even fought yet, but God is talking past. It's already a done deal, Moses. There's no reason to fear this guy. I've already given him into your hand. My plan and purpose is that he shall be defeated. And we know what does Scripture say about the plans and purposes of God. They can never be thwarted. God says this is the way it's going to be. That's the way it is. Og is defeated. Oh, you still have to fight, but he's defeated. It's the interesting thing about the way in which God conveys this message. So note, verse 3 says, So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also. God gave him into our hand. God defeated him. God destroyed him. But read on in verse 3. And we struck him down until he had no survivor left. God defeated him, but we struck him down. God says, fear not, for I've given him into your hand. But don't just sit there and do nothing. You too need to strike him down. But I've already given him into your hand. The outcome has already been established. He is defeated. The third thing, or the fourth thing in regards to this account of Og, is that this gets referenced. This defeat, not only of Og, but of Sihon as well, that these two get referenced in Scripture. Just leave your finger here at Deuteronomy 3. Go with me to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. Now, given the fact that this is one of the Psalms of Ascent, uh, most of the psalms surrounding it are psalms of David. In fact, the, the last note of who wrote is Psalm 133 of David. There is no designation for 135. Most commentators believe then that everything that follows until a new designation is by the same author. So this would be David. This would be approximately 500 years later. If David's the author, this is 500 years later, right? What do they remember 500 years later? Psalm 135. Pick it up with me at verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord does, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all depths. 
He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it is who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who is in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. 500 years later, we're still remembering Og. We're still remembering Og. That God said, fear not. I've given him into your hand. That Og, this man of great size, this giant of a man, this man of great pride and arrogance, falls and is utterly defeated. Go to Psalm 136. This one I find, that one's interesting. This one's even more interesting. Because Psalm 136 is this psalm with this continued refrain. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. In the midst of this psalm about the steadfast love of God, here comes one of the examples of the steadfast love of God. Go down to verse 17. To him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. What does the defeat of Og teach God's people? What is it that David is saying in Psalm 135? What, what is the important message? That God watches over his people. What's the message of Psalm 136? That God watches over his people because he loves them. His steadfast love is what defeated Og. It is the love of God that defeats the enemies of God's people. Banag functions then, you see. Not just as a king of Bashan, but he functions as a picture, as a foreshadow, does he not? Or maybe we would say as a representative of something that is larger and bigger than even he was as a big man. He foreshadows, you see, the enemy of God's people. That's why it, we keep coming back to it. This is the enemy of God's people. This is the emphasis and the picture of your enemy, of my enemy. Satan himself, the devil. The one of enormous pride. Pride even larger than he is as an individual. This is God's picture. And what's the picture? 
What happens to Satan? What happens to our enemy? He is defeated. What does God say to us? Fear not. Fear not. I've given him into your hand. You don't need to fear. We go to that beautiful text of Ephesians chapter 6. Listen to, to God speak to us from that passage. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against... Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Lest you think those are government officials alive today. No, no, no. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Fear not. In our struggle against the satanic power of evil present in this world that we see on our television screens, that we read about, that we find on our mobile devices, the news that surrounds us in this day and age, the cosmic forces of evil, Satan himself who is at work to tear down the very fabric, rubric of the foundations of our society. God's truth. What does God come and say? Oh, cower, run you fools. Don't you realize what you're up against? He says, fear not. For I have given him into your hand. What does the passage say? So we struck him down. What does Paul say in Ephesians 6? See, God's got it all in control. God's got it all defeated. So you just sit there and do nothing. No, take up the whole armor of God. Become involved in the fight. Become involved in the battle. Knowing that the battle is already won. Because God has declared it so. But you see, for you and I as believers, we're not living in that past. We're living in the present defeat of Satan. This is what Christ did on the cross. He's defeated. What did we learn from Colossians chapter 1? But that we who were in darkness, we who were in disobedience, we who were under the wrath of God have been brought into his light. Why? Because in Christ, God has canceled all of the debt that we had. There is nothing that Satan has on you and I. There is nothing he can hold over your head or over my head. Why? Because he has been defeated. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Is death. Has death been destroyed? Yes. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Christ's death, in Christ's resurrection. 
Satan and all the powers of Satan have been destroyed. Fear not. Fear not. It's not only, for I have given him into your hand. It is now, fear not, for he is defeated. This is God's call to you and I. This is, this is what Revelation pictures for us. The great king who rules and reigns. Why? Because Satan is already defeated. So we come to the reminder then, and you say, well, what's this got to do with the Lord's Supper this morning? My friends, this is what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the victory of Jesus Christ. Right? The cross is not defeat. The death of Jesus is not a lose. It's a win. It's a victory. God has chosen the most incredible means for the victory to be gained. And that incredible means is the cross. The death of Christ. Oh, for his steadfast love you see, endures forever. Because he loves us as his people. Our great enemy, the odd of spiritual forces, is defeated. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But for those who are called, remember that word? That's what, remember Deuteronomy? It's about God's calling of his people. What is the table about, it is about the calling of God's people. But for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The table, you see, reminds us of Christ's victory. If you guys come to the Lord's Supper and thought, oh, God, this is, this is so horrible. This is so sad. Christ died. Well, I hope you thought that. But I hope it didn't linger. I hope that's not what stays with you. 
I hope, I hope that's, that's not the only thing you think of when you come to the table. I think you, I, I hope you hear the ringing sound of God's voice. In my death, fear not. Because Christ's death is truly a victory. Satan is defeated. He is destroyed. His power, his hold over you and I is broken. But for those who are being saved, the cross is the power God. But the table not only reminds us of Christ's victory over our great enemy, Satan, but the table also reminds us of the fact that sin is indeed defeated. It's a victory. It's a victory over Satan. But it is also a victory over my sin. That too has been destroyed. It's not only Og. It's all Og's little people. It's those fortified cities. It's those villages. My sin. My sin as we sing. Not in part. But the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. But the table is also the reminder of God's call. Even as that defeat of Og was a, a reminder, yes, of God's steadfast love, of God's power over their enemy. But it was a call, a resounding call. Now go into this land and live as my people. The table calls us. To live now as God's people. To go out into this world with the shout of victory. To go out into this world with the life of victory. To go out in this world with a renewed and steadfast desire. To live a holy life. A God-pleasing life. A God-honoring life. In all of its forms and shapes and facets. To live as God's victorious people. To live as God's loved people. Because of Christ. Father, we thank you again for your word. For this historical account of your people as they are about to enter the land of Canaan. That Og is defeated by your hand, by your power. Father, we know not how many days of life we have left here upon earth until we enter that land of glory. But as we stand here on this side of that Jordan, of our own Jordan, Father, we too here begin to taste the beauty of glory land. 
And we too here, Father, even on this side of the Jordan, know, know of the victory of Jesus Christ. Father, as we approach this table, may we hear your call to us in it. And may we celebrate your grace and your love and your mercy. In Christ's name, God's people say, Amen.